The Eckhart and Coca Report, episode 107. Welcome to the Eckhart and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Lacard and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this uh, episode of the Akad and Coca Report. We have a special guest today. Returning to the show is Dr. John Mandrola, um, who will need no introduction for many in our audience um, who, who know him. But for the few who don't know him, Dr. Mandrola is a cardiac electrophysiologist in Louisville, Kentucky, and a thoughtful writer and commentator on all things medicine. Dr. Mandrola is an early participant in the medical blogosphere, and he built a large and faithful following first on his own website, drjohnm.org and subsequently as chief cardiology correspondent for Medscape, where he publishes a regular columns and, a, and hosts a podcast. He is beloved by many for his heartfelt dedication to medicine and loyal commitment to patient care, and his candid criticism of our healthcare system. John, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a real honor to be on twice. It's great to have you. And uh, uh, well, speaking of having you on twice, we've received some complaints from, from listeners that uh, we handle our, our guests with kids' gloves. So that we've decided that whenever a guest comes back for the second time, the gloves are off. Okay. So, <laughs> just a little, little warning here. All right. John, you wrote a very, very um, provocative article uh, on Medscape, uh, a blog entitled Independent Nurse Practitioners and <coughs> Physician Assistants, a doc's view. We'll have a link to that on the show notes. It received 538 comments as of today. I think you really, uh, you, you hit a nerve, not just a nerve, you hit a, you know, a, a C fiber, the C fiber of the, you know, the pain nerve, you hit it with a sledgehammer. So uh, the article was in um, a, a commentary on a, a recent executive order by, by uh, President Trump that essentially directs the administration to give more independence to nurse practitioners and physician assistants uh, so that they can practice without supervision, uh, as is currently the case, and to work towards pay parity so they get paid just you know as much as a primary care physician would get paid. And you took the position that it's okay, there's nothing wrong with that, and perhaps even it's some good can come out of this. So we'll get into, is this a fair uh, summary? We'll get into the details of your <coughs> arguments, but is this sort of a fair um, overall assessment of, of um, what you wrote? Well, almost. I would say that, and we had this debate um, about the title, and I would say that uh, my take was more that um, it wasn't going to be the apocalypse, that it was going to happen. It is happening. And I, I don't think it, I don't think it's going to be as bad as people think. Okay. And I think that's the that's the gist. Of okay. It. Uh, right. And and you see, actually, I mean, I will get into this, but you see that there may actually be some benefits, you know, here and there. You mentioned a few things that are maybe positive. But let me ask you this, John. You are um, in the uh, one of the four horsemen of medical conservatism. This new movement that is becoming very popular with, with your colleagues, Dr. Sifu, Dr. Prasad, and, and Dr. Foy. And, you know, knowing you and knowing what you've written over the years, in general, whenever there's a, a change in medical practice, something being introduced, 
you know, your stance is to be very skeptical, to say, no, 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 really, let's make sure that it's, you know, it's an improvement. Let's make sure that it's, uh, you know, better. Let's, let's not adopt something radical here. We're going to be a medical conservative. This should be the, the default attitude. Is there an inconsistency here or what? Tell us about it. Or do you think the evidence is strong <clears throat> enough or compelling enough that, that the change can be made? Well, um, I appreciate you bringing up the medical conservative thing. Thank you. We're trying real hard. Okay. Um, the, I think the link is this. The reason why medical conservatism is so attractive to us is the core principle that doctors don't really control as much outcomes as they think they do. So um, the reason why the default to medical conservatism is, I think, uh, so attractive is that we, we, don't, um, we don't have as much of an effect size as we thought. For instance, if doctors were a, um, in a randomized controlled trial, you would, take, you would need to take thousands and thousands of patients in the trial to show a difference. Say we were being compared to nurse practitioners or PAs. So yes, we, and I made this point, we do great things and I love being a doctor, don't get me wrong. But I think that, um, I think that all the training we do and all the things that we think we do um, are pretty marginal benefits when you say you stack it up to uh, good, you know, good sanitation, clean drinking water, clean air, compared to all that, our effect size is small. So the medical conservative believes that the, the doctor is helpful, but is a, you know, maybe not as influential as he or she thinks they are. Okay. I'll, I'll uh, probably come back to that because I'll have a, you know, I mean, that's, I find that's a very pro provocative uh, position uh, myself. But uh, so, so you think that doctors, you know, we don't control outcomes and therefore you think that the introduction of nurse practitioners is not going to change much. Uh, is that, is that the idea? Yeah, I think that if you look at um, if you look at a bell curve, a Gaussian curve, I think that um, uh, for the average effect will be very very small. Um, I mean, already nurse practitioners nurse practitioners are doing so much in our in our in our hospital and many hospitals. Okay, so technically they have supervision, but they're making a lot of medical decisions in subspecialties in primary care and. You know, people aren't dying in the streets. I mean, I, I just don't. I mean, I don't. I just don't see any bad effects. Yes, of the 580 comments now, there are a bunch of anecdotes, and people have mentioned anecdotes about this nurse practitioner screwed up or this or that. And I'm like, please, don't even tell me that because I mean, I see. I've seen over 24 years. I've seen plenty of doctor screw ups. I mean, heck, I've screwed up. So. Right. I, I, yeah. But John, I mean, you if, think if uh, hang on, sorry, Anish, just one, one thing, just to, to go back to my question, if doctors don't control out outcomes so much, then why make a big deal about the introduction of 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 anything, whether it's you know atrial fibrillation, ablation, or this or that? I mean, if you're going to make a change, why why be so skeptical about the changes that are being made, and and you say you, you know you demand outcomes for devices and for drugs and whatnot. Uh, are you demanding the same kind of outcomes for the introduction of nurse practitioners? And if not, why not? Yeah, I think um, I think 
can I can I just tell the story of Dr. Lloyd just real briefly? Yeah, sure. That's so, that's so, in your it's in your yeah, uh, yeah, your article. It's in the yeah. piece. It's in the piece. Okay. I'll make it brief. But so you know, Vinay did that beautiful study a number of years ago where he just he showed all of these medical reversals. He wrote a book about it, and I I read this I read this article. It was just in the Mayo Clinic <clears throat> proceedings many a couple of years ago, and I thought, oh my gosh, we're just we're just doing all these things and we're, and, and then they get reversed. And so I wrote this essay and Dr. Lloyd was this senior guy. I mean, he's just, a, he was Baptist minister before he was a, before he was a pulmonologist. He's, he just walks around and everybody listens to him. He wears a suit and tie everywhere. And he sat me down and he said, John has a great essay, but you don't understand. We doctors don't control outcomes as much. And I was like, Dr. Lloyd, what are you talking about? I'm a cardiologist. I control lots of things. And he told a story about two patients with sepsis, you know, one that he was sure was going to die and treated him in the usual fashion. Next morning, the guy's up eating breakfast and another patient who was much less sick. He thought he was going to live, no problem. And the next morning comes in, the patients died. And so that just, when I heard that, I thought, holy cow, well, maybe we don't control outcomes as much as we did. And so that's really changed my view of, of, being a medical conservative, knowing that I'm not advocating doing dumb stuff and not treating people who are sick. People who are sick need treatment, but I'm advocating just saying, holy cow, we don't really have as much control as we think we do. And as far as the nurse practitioners and PAs with much less training, I think they, there is some data. I agree that it's not the highest level data. But the, the studies that have been done, biased as they may be, low, you know, low level evidence, they don't show any major um, uh, differences between physician-led care. So uh, yes, we should study this more. Nurse practitioners are coming, uh, becoming more independent. This is easy. We could easily do cluster randomized trials where you randomize an ER to a nurse practitioner independent versus not. And then we could look at outcomes. You could do it within systems and it should be done. And if those trials show that doctors do better, then I'll change my, I'll change my view, but there's not a shred of evidence that they do. Anish. So John, do you think, um, say we, say we, uh, for, for a moment, accept the medical conservative, um, uh, philosophy. Um, do you really think that, uh, nurse, nurse practitioners or, um, folks that, uh, perhaps don't have the training, um, don't have the uh, background that um, an experienced clinician may have. Um, do you think that they're the best guard? They're the best um, uh, envoys for medical conservatism. You mentioned in your piece that uh, there's, you know, a, fa a fairly reasonable data set and a fairly good good amount of folks that uh, would agree that um, more nurse practitioners may may result in more consultations and more nurse practitioners may result in more downstream testing being done, right? It takes a lot of experience to um, stop cascades, right? We talk a lot about cascades get, that get started off with, uh, with testing uh, that happens, you know, just with the lowly EKG. Um, uh, who, who's, better, who's, who's, who's in a better position to look at an EKG with T-wave inversions inferiorly and um, say, all right, this person does not need any other testing. Is it a cardiologist? Or is it a is it a nurse practitioner who's practicing again independently? Not so not a nurse practitioner gets I can run over to you and say, "Hey, take a look at this. What do you think uh, I should do?" Uh, so um, I think um, even if we kind of go along with 
uh, medical conservatism as being um, you know the default uh, best way to practice, um, I would have some serious concerns if I were you about uh, the coming world and how it is uh, how closely they're going to hew to that. Yeah, I agree. I I think that. So I, I looked at this when I was doing the piece, I did, did looked into the data and it does look like um, the less experienced the clinician, the more testing they're gonna do. And I mean, that there was a study I cited with interns and residents and, and uh, they, they do more testing. And, uh, and I think that that will be the case as nurse practitioners come on. And I'm not advocating for just throwing an untrained nurse practitioner into the wild. It, it, it's really, I think the best model, and I, you know, there's not enough words in the piece to describe this, but the best model would be an apprenticeship model. I mean, I work with a nurse practitioner who's been in cardiology for 25 years. She's done devices, she's done um, heart failure clinic, she's done all of this stuff. I mean, she is an amazing clinician, but you know, if she tried to go to the dermatology and she could, I mean, she would have no training. So I think the, the best case scenario, and I think most of the nurse practitioners and PAs would agree that a period of apprenticeship with an experienced clinician but, and staying within that field is the best way. But there's an issue, right? I think, I think there's clearly some very, very talented folks um, uh, who are not doctors, who don't have that stamp or that certification, who... Who are tremendous health? Who are tremendous at uh, delivering healthcare? Um, have a great eye. You know all the things that you would like to see in terms of a good uh, clinician. Um, but uh, you know your nurse practitioner, who you've worked with so closely, who's very experienced, is really really good, and you like her and you value her so much. In part because you have imparted a certain certain amount of values to her. Right. The issue comes in is that so in some ways she she's 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 good because of you. Right. If, if say, you know, you, you were to move away, there were, there were, say, somebody else that was, there were to come on, correct? Now, and they had a very different value system or a very different way of practicing, that would imprint onto her. Um, so, you know, one of the issues is, is that, uh, you know, they have, they're certainly very, very good at, 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 at putting protocols and, and at following protocols and following guidelines, which, which is good in some ways, right? But but you 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 of course you know have written so much about <laughs> how 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 um, how how guidelines uh, are are somewhat corrupted and you, you really need a lot of critical thinking to kind of look through those guidelines to look at the primary data to decide so you know I think um, it's challenging you know I think you, you know if, if if you're looking at the landscape of of cardiology say right and you see a lot more uh, bad than good happening in a systematic fashion John. I have, I mean, I think I would be very, very concerned that, you know, we won't name names, but, you know, a nurse practitioner with X, Y, and Z is going to be very, very good at signing up people for Tavers. You know, I, I don't know if you took, I don't know if you actually, I don't know. Did you take a listen to that, the one podcast we did um, with the, uh, with the uh, wonderful patient of mine who was, you know, 89 or something like that. And uh, she had a Taver done and her description of the process was just, you know, uh, just amazing. And she barely spent any time with any physicians, right? Uh, she, most of the time was spent with nurse with a nurse practitioner, a PA, I think. And 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 the, and the thing that kind of finally pushed her, she was this reluctant to go along with the tarot because she kept saying to me, "I feel fine, I feel fine, I felt totally fine. I don't know why you're talking to me about this, right?" 
finally, the thing that kind of pushed her over the edge was a nurse practitioner telling her that you're going to die unless you get this aortic valve fixed. Well, come on now. That's not fair. I'm just going to fight right back because I have heard. My point is not that the nurse practitioner herself, I don't think that, that he or she was bad. It's that, it's that they're operating within a system and, that, and they, they, they take on the imprint of that system. It's too much, I think, to ask that nurse practitioner working within the system that they're working in to say, you know what? I really don't think this tavern is the best thing for you. I mean, who, who I mean, I, I could say that within a system. You do it all the time, right, John? You all the time, you know, will say, look, I don't, th- I mean, you're doing it right now, you know, the watchman's right. Uh, but again, can you expect the same type of thing from a nurse practitioner to be able to look at the, look at the data and say, hey, you know, I think this, this, this watchman, I don't think the watchman is right for you. I don't think they're going to be able to stand up to the system in a way that, that, that someone like you can. Oh, I, okay. You know? I just, I, I just think that um, I, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard that a doctor pushed a patient into a procedure yeah. by using fear, right. or so yeah. I don't think there's anything yeah. specific about a nurse practitioner. No, no, that's it. not the point. The point is the point is the point is not I, that you don't you understand the point I'm making. I'm not I'm not making the point to say an anecdote of where a nurse practitioner did something bad. I'm saying she's doing uh, she or he are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, working within a system that that wants to get you know a tav- you know ten tavers a week. But um, so you're making the case, you're making the case, let me understand this, that yes. a nurse practitioner or a PA is going to be more, um, is going to feel more pressure from their system to, to than, a, than a doctor. I don't think they'll feel pressure. I think they're just going to do what they're, what, what the system tells them to do. I think, you know, whether you look at lactate protocols that require, require 10 liters of fluid, like how do, how are medical reversals actually engineered? Medical reversals are engineered by a physician looking at the reverse trial and saying, you know what, this patient who has an EF of 30%, whose pulse ox is 92% has some pulmonary vascular congestion, maybe I shouldn't be giving them XCCs per kg, right? The, the, you know, the, the tidal volume, you know, the, 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 the large tidal volumes, right? It requires the clinician to say, you know what, these plateau pressures when I, when I ventilate them at so-and-so are causing these massive plateau pressures and we need to not do this. I, but, I, but Anish, I why, 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 do you think, why do you think nurse practitioners are more liable to go with the flow, then phys- what is it about uh, us clinicians or you know physicians yeah. that make us different in that respect? Is it is it medical education? Because I think uh, John had something to say about medical education and its value, right? Right in in shaping what we do. So wh- what what is it about? Uh, what do you think is uh, there's a difference? If you think you know if if you allege a difference, why do you think that is? John, I mean, oh, Anish. Oh, I, Anish, sorry, Anish. Oh, Anish. oh, you're, yeah, no, Anish. Oh, you're talking to me, sorry. <laughs> no, no, Anish, sorry, you're making a claim. So, 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 so why do you think, you know, if you have an MD after your name, yeah. it, it no, makes I, a yeah, difference exactly. in because, how... Because there's, because there's, there's value, because you understand, it's like, it's like, it's like knowing how to do a math problem, right? Yeah, um, but but, but how, how do you get to that point? What, what, no, well, at the end of yeah, the day? Yeah, let me finish. Yeah, so, okay. so it's, it's like understanding, it's like understanding a math problem by memorizing how to do something, right? It's like, uh, so if you memorize, you can memorize things and do calculus, or you can understand what, what, it in, what an integral is and uh, why, why you're doing that, right? And one person, uh, when, you, when you compare them on a test, they may do just, just as well. But when you present them with a new problem that requires them to understand the concept, I think they're going. I think they're going to. They're yeah, going but, to but struggle. Again, does it happen at the selection level in medical school? 
the kinds both, of you both, know what it takes both. to get, to get into medical school, or both. what you what you actually learn in medical school, or the exposure that you get. Both. You know, I, think, I, think, I think the selection piece is critical, and John didn't talk about that, that, there's a, that the group of doctors are selected in a very different way than the group of nurse practitioners are. So that, that yeah, I mean, the, the ability oh. to, so yeah. that's one. Oh. And then, but the second is also, there's just so much more background base level of training, right? I mean, again, you can, you can, you can uh, teach anyone how to, how to um, do, a, a, a do a technical aspect of things, to teach them how to understand them and to operate based on understanding the concepts, that that I think takes a much longer dedicated amount of time. So both things, I think you can't take, you know, so. I, I want to push back. Yeah. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Because Anish, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. If yeah. you're talking about a nurse practitioner or PA who's out of training one or two years and they just finished their school and they're going into the ICU to treat sepsis or whatever. They have no clinical, they have no clinical experience. But let's just say someone's been working in an ICU, uh, maybe as a nurse before they were a nurse practitioner, and then they go to nurse practitioner school and they're working with an ICU team, pulmonary team, whatever. They've been doing it for five or six years or whatever. I think it's it's really crazy that we think that a nurse practitioner or PA who's doing this for five years and who has an internet access can't learn what they need to learn to have this judgment seeing patients every day. Like an electrophysiologist, my, okay, I go back to my nurse, my nurse practitioner. She not only follows protocols and understands things, she like kicks my partner and I in the shins and says, you dumb butts, what are you doing? Why, why did you do this? Because you know, she has experience. So I agree with you if you're talking about a two or three years of experience, like just out of school, like an intern or resident. But some of these nurse practitioners who stay in this field with the ability to do medical education, if they're motivated and they want to read and they want to learn, they're no different than anybody who went through uh, uh, medical school or residency. That's crazy. I think that 2020, people can educate themselves to be amazing clinicians. If okay, but uh, but let, let's be clear, John. Um, the executive order would allow, as far as I can understand, would allow a pathway where a nurse comes out of one of the, you know, diploma mills, and I think there are you know thousands of online diploma mills now, right? Get a degree as an NP or a PA or whatnot, and. You know, I mean, I, I don't think the government is putting any provisions that they should be under the supervision of seasoned clinicians. I may be wrong, but it's I didn't I don't see that, and I didn't see that in your your piece that much. I mean, I think this is something that you're introducing. You say a little bit of a caveat to say, well, you know, they need to be sort of trained under competent clinicians for a period of time and and that sort of thing. But I, I think that's fine. I mean, I think that's a defensible position. But I just want to make clear that we understand things correctly. Is the yes. executive orders. Uh, is the executive order promoting something that you are supporting right now by saying that uh, you know they should have um, apprenticeship and whatnot, or uh, or not? Uh, I'm not. I'm not saying I support. I'm not saying I support throwing untrained people out there with little training. But let's just say, let's just say that we give the nurse practitioner or the PA the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that they're not going to go. Um, with two years of training and start doing medical practice that uh, they have no experience with, that most of the people are going to get into a job where they get comfortable with it, they work with someone, they learn, 
And I really don't think, I really don't think it's fair to think that most of these people are just going to want to just go willy nilly out there. But then I want you to circle back, Michelle, because I want to, I want to circle back and say, even if they did, okay. even, if they, even if they did, do you think that there would still be a, 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 an apocalyptic type effect if untrained people started treating people? And I really, really wonder in 2020 with all the backup and the fail safe mechanisms, if that would happen. I okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. I think it's a very important uh, point. We'll get back to that. But but to make sure that I understand, if, if the world was according to your wishes, then you'd have nurse practitioners who'd come out, who'd spend a few years learning from, from clinicians and then sort of gain experience and then be able to practice on their own and, and the world would be fine and they'd be, practice they'd be able to practice independently without any further supervision and the yeah, world would I be think, fine. I, I really think that just, just take the average person who comes out of nurse practitioner school. I really think that the I really think that they want that. They okay. want to be now, comfortable with right. that. Right. Now, now suppose suppose a nurse practitioner has followed that pathway, has trained with you for five, six years, or clinicians like you, is now practicing independently for five, ten years. Now, can they themselves start to train nurse practitioners fresh out of school and, you know, chaperone them for a few years and then launch those second-generation nurse practitioners independently into the clinical arena? I, I right? can't imagine that. Yes, I can't yes. imagine that would be a problem. Okay, so in a way, there's a way to, you, you conceive of a way of practicing medicine without physicians whatsoever, eventually, right? Because eventually, you would have a completely independent medical school free, without any attachment to medical school, a, a pathway to practicing medicine that has nothing to do with medical school. And, and again, you know, be, be careful, because I'm not falling on one side or the other on that question. So we'll come back to that. But I just want to, you know, I want to understand clearly where, where you stand. Yeah, I look. I, I think you're pushing me a little bit with these hypotheticals, but I, I think right. That... But you you make comments in your paper about you know we don't need to learn you know we forget half of what we learn in medical school we don't uh, yeah, need to more. learn the Krebs cycle and or more and so forth, which I think are very very valid points, and and therefore the the question becomes, you know, what makes a doctor or what makes what gives someone what it what it ha what it takes to practice yeah, medicine. I, okay? I, I guess I guess. I guess so that goes out a little bit into the it goes a little bit out of the uh, of the argument to a more of a philosophical argument but but really always, with me it's always it always goes back I to un the I understand <laughs> I understand but you know I was putting in some I was putting in pacemakers today and I thought to myself you know putting in a pacemaker for instance is is way easier than fixing my bicycle I mean I just cannot figure out the drivetrain of my bicycle and I I could train anybody with decent hands and a decent head to, to, to put in a pacemaker and they might be better at it than me. So really, what is it about what, what is it about going through all that hazing, you know, medical school, Krebs cycle, whatever, OBGYN rotation, like all this stuff. And uh, now I can put in a pacemaker, but someone who, let's say I trained them to do it for a year and they did a hundred cases. Why couldn't, why couldn't they do it? It's crazy. Correct, but if but if you follow that logic, then there would be no, I mean, there'd be no medical schools. There'd be, no, I mean, everything would sort of dissolve. I mean, how how would you have anything, right? I mean, I mean, yeah, because everything can be learned and passed on, sort of, um, you know. 
yeah. by, by apprenticeship or word of mouth like that? Or So I, so I went, you know, when I visited a lab in Germany, um, I visited a lab in Germany to do, learn some ablation. And I went in there and I couldn't believe as an American, this was, this was, you know, a few years ago that they had extremely young people. I mean, these were like intern level people doing complex ablation and learning to do complex ablation, things that I did after many, many years. And, and these young people were really good at it. And they hadn't even done any medical training, but yet they were super skilled in doing an ablation procedure. So, you know, I mean, these European countries are not so crazy. I mean, they're just, they're just doing it differently than we're doing it. So we're stuck in this model and we do it because that's the way we do it. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's the way it has so to be. This, this is, this is a, um, this is a dystopian, uh, uh, view of the future. Meaning, this is not this is not what make, would make Don and Bedian happy, right? Meaning, if you have if you just have if you just have folks that are subspecialized that are very technical, right? It, it defeats it defeats what it means to have a relationship with with someone called uh, a doctor. Meaning, I already think it's a problem that we are subspecializing as much as we are because it creates a massive amount of fractionation of care, right? And you read yes. if you read what Don Bedian said as he was dying of, of bladder cancer, right? So j just for the audience, Don Obedian was a, yeah. a guy who was, uh, I mean, he's considered the father of the quality movement. He was all about, you know, measuring outcomes and whatnot and so forth. And at the end, you know, and he was a sort of a giant. And then when he died, he looked, he reflected on the healthcare system and said, it's so fractionated, so mechanical and, and so forth. And we've lost, you know, the essence of what it is to be a doctor. Right. So, okay. so, you know, if you, if you, if you, kind of take medicine and, and you break it down and you silo it into these little parts and you have, and you're absolutely right. There's, I'm sure there's folks, we don't select folks for good hands, I don't think, when we're selecting people for med school, right? So I'm sure there's wonderful technical folks who can do stuff way better than whoever we can. And, and, and you see that, and you see that in how, you know, something like CT surgery has evolved, for instance, there's residents, nurse first assists who are very technically skilled and do a lot of the steps that it takes for a CT surgeon to do, right? But there is um, there's certainly something to be something to be said about um, uh, having you know uh, uh, having that relationship with 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 the, with the patient over a long period of time and making these decisions with them and kind of holding their hands if not literally but figuratively through that whole process. If you break it down to um, you know a very what you're talking about the reason i said it's dystopian is because then then it becomes very technical you have one a guy who just puts in pacemakers all the time and 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 that person that 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 whoever that person is you know is not going to be able to figure out whether or not the patient should get the pacemaker or not you know what i'm saying i completely agree i completely agree with that and i think one of the reasons why i love electrophysiology so much is that on one day we're in the lab you know, messing around with these complex uh, systems and, and mapping systems and devices, and it's just extremely technical. But on the next day, we're seeing patients in clinic and we're helping them with just basically living life and making relationships and seeing them through life. And I've been now 25 years, so I've seen patients through their whole, you know, arc at the right. end of life. And it's beautiful. But Anish, there's absolutely zero, <clears throat> zero of that that I requires having an MD after well, my name. But what zero. I think you're missing, no, no, I, I, you're right. The MD is I mean, superfluous. But, but I think you're, you're not, uh, you're at least discounting 
the skill and talent it may, it may take to be able to go from A to Z in that whole process, right? Meaning you not only, you're a very talented guy. I know it does, you, you may not think so, but you're, you're an incredibly talented guy. You're very compassionate. You also, you know, snake catheters and wires into the heart. You map, you map, uh, you map AFib, you map X, Y, and Z, and you're able to ablate. You also have a good understanding of who should and should not be in the lab. Meaning these are things, to have that, that skill set to go all the way from one to the other, that is not something that is a dime a dozen in society. That, that's a select group of folks that can, that can do all of that. So yes, any one single thing you, you do, John, can be replaced by, by, someone, by someone who doesn't need 10 years of training. But, but I, don't, I, didn't, I think, you're, I think you're, you've, you've made it. It's not going to be easy to get somebody like John Mandrola. Um, to do uh, all of what John Mandrola does. Let me uh, try to understand a little bit. I'd like you to articulate a little bit bit better what your (laughs) view is because, you know, on the one hand, it sounds, I mean, if if all it is, it's holding people's hands and, uh, you know, it's very touchy-feely. So, so are you saying that? Are you talking to me? Doctors, doctor, yeah, uh, you, Anish. Are are you saying that you, you know, you want doctors need to be very competent technically, but also be touchy-feely and hold people's hands for the rest of their lives? Oh yeah, I mean absolutely. What that that that, that that's I mean the, that that's what we've that's what we've kind of lost by having folks that are PVC ablation experts, right? Like you know they see a, they see a PVC and automatically it's like, well, what's the what's the uh, you know the, the yeah, side but of origin? I can tell you that there, there, there are lots of lots of patients who would say, you know, I don't care about the touchy feeliness. I want the guy who can you know fix my heart or fix my liver or fix whatever it is. I want somebody right, who's but, really well, super competent. Yeah. Right. Well, and, again, you know, and I can take care of my own, you know, touchy feely thing with my no, own no, no, family no. and my own my my, <laughs> no, no, by touchy, my Baptist preacher and and <laughs> you know no, no, whoever by, it is. By touchy feely, I mean having a relationship with with a patient to so that you can you can come to an understanding of what it is he values and what it is he wants. And sometimes uh, you sh- have shared, patients s- shared decision making. <laughs> no, no, not shared decision making. Sometimes, <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes you have patients that okay. that desperately want some some uh, procedure done, and and you as a physician feel that this is not something that they need you know so there's that conversation that takes place that 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 i think makes for good physicians and makes for good good health care and at the end of the day we want we all want good health care for our patients we don't necessarily want a commoditized world where dialysis is on aisle aisle one pvc okay. ablation is on aisle two right and and i and i fear i really fear that what john what, you know if we're not careful um the world john is talking about will lead us to that i mean and the other big thing, the other thing that 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 isn't talked about, um, I thought John in your piece was that physician that patients aren't aren't are, don't have a choice anymore. Like, fine, you want you want to have a, you want to have a world where you don't have licensing and stuff. Okay, okay, fine. But then then make it so that patients have a choice. Right now, patients are referred to academic quaternary care centers for pulmonary hypertension clinic, and they'll they'll see they'll see a they don't they don't have a choice. They just they see a nurse practitioner. The nurse practitioner may or may not be talking to whoever or maybe collaborating with somebody and and that's it and um, i don't think so i don't think physician i don't think we're being given a fair chance and what's going to happen i mean fine make the make the playing field level um and let patients choose with their dollars what they want to do with it if they want to spend if they want to spend it on you know the group of nurse practitioners then fine you know uh, if they want to spend it on somebody like john mandrola okay like let them choose but right now we're not giving them that choice so that's why I don't think it's. I don't think it, any of this is fair or loving level play, playing field for uh, for physicians. Yeah, two comments. Yeah. One is that that's how I close my piece. I think that 
if if it were a truly fr truly free market and there were no right. coercion, right. then I think that um, uh, that would be the best because people could people could just decide whether just like you decide whether to buy a more expensive coat or sneakers or whatever you you could decide whether you wanted to pay extra money. Right. But I, I didn't want to. I really don't want to devolve this podcast into a discussion about healthcare healthcare policy because it's not you know i'm not uh, yeah, a, i'm I not agree. an expert right. i'm not right. an expert but but the other thing is let me just the second comment is i want to admit that i think the biggest weakness in my argument i think the biggest um the thing i was most concerned about is that maybe it's like david foster wallace's fish you know maybe because i have 20 years of experience because i've had all these mentors because i have these great colleagues that maybe i can't see the effect that you know, all of this training has. And so maybe it's just, it is what it is for me, but putting, putting myself into a shoes of a less experienced person, maybe I don't know. So that, I think that is a weakness. Yeah, you know, I think that's exactly right because I, I want to come back to what Anish was saying and, and, and press you, Anish, a little bit further because what you're, you know, I agree with you. I'm giving you a hard time, but, but the reason I'm, I'm, I'm trying to press it is because I don't see anything explicitly in the medical training that either selects for or um, uh, imparts to students what it is, the values that you're talking about. There's absolutely nothing in the selection process, in the MCAT and in the USMAD step one and two and three and the Zero. prep cycle and everything. So if there's nothing that you can identify in that medical training system that imparts what you're tr saying that, you know, then where is it coming from and why shouldn't a nurse practitioner get it by spending five years with John Mandrola? No, no, it, it, it has to do with, it has to do with, so I, I, you know, part of my disagreement with the- uh, and, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you my opinion and where, yes, where yes. it's, it's part of my from disagreement, the end, but go ahead. Part, yeah. of my, part of my disagreement with Dr. Carmody, um, Brian Carmody, who's a pediatric nephrologist who we had on talk about the uselessness of the uh, step ones and how, you know, doing away with it to take away the pressure and stuff, is that, is that there, there, there are, I mean, all of life, all of life, seems to be uh, you know some type of filtering process to try to figure out to try to to try to get get you a group of folks that are able to do uh, a job at a certain level so um so you know i, I don't know that necessarily every single pro uh, every single uh, uh, step in the process has to necessarily be useful at the end but your ability to um, oh, and, and this is it, this is well understood by, um, by in the military, for instance, right? There's tons and tons. Like, how do you get SEAL Team Six? SEAL Team Six, they're doing tons of things up, getting up to that point that have nothing to do with their ability to go into, um, you know, some Abbottabad, uh, some suburb of uh, in, in Pakistan, and 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 get in and 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 you know uh, take out Osama bin Laden. I mean, there, there's so many steps that they've taken up to that point. That that are like their Krebs cycle. It's like what was the point of of doing of doing that? But the point is to be able to find and select a a a a very you know elite group of folks. And the question is, so what does organic chemistry have to do with becoming a good doctor? Uh, not too much, but at some basic level like concentration, being able to regurgitate, being able to memorize a significant amount of stuff. I mean, though there are some basic, there may be some basic skills there that that are that that you may want. You know, physicians to have physicians to have meaning. Organic chemistry itself isn't doesn't do anything, um, but but simply the ability to be able to jump through those hoops um, is perhaps how you get to some somewhat of an uh, somewhat of an elite group of folks. And 
And again, so my point, my point to Brian and my was that we probably need to have a more a system that's even more elite. Meaning, we shouldn't dilute this too much by necessarily, uh, um, uh, you know, you know, if you if you go and uh, you know if you, if you go uh, uh, volunteer in some place in uh, the Sudan, have that be have have that have an equal weightage to being able to get a three point nine GPA in chemical engineering. I mean, there's a there there's there's different skills there now. Whether or not that three point nine GPA in chemical engineering has anything to do with with being a a fantastic doctor, that that's a whole different thing. But basically, if you're able to get a three point nine GPA, then you you may have some level of intellectual heft, so that when you know when when you see something coming down the line that is a current practice that you want to reverse you may have some ability to do that. It's a very long-winded answer and I apologize. But but my point <laughs> well, is, you don't need all those steps in the process. They don't have to add up to something. But your ability to jump over that hoop does 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 suggest something. But I would, I would say you're arguing, I, I understand, obviously it's a completely plausible argument, but you're, you're arguing with absolutely no evidence that, it, hmm. that it, it's just the way we do it. It's just, it's, it's, it's like diltiazem drips. I mean, it, it, we just do it. I mean, it's crazy. So I, I would. Let me, I don't know what you think about this, but let me just throw it out there. I mean, w this is 2020. I mean, we had to memorize stuff back then because there was no really way to go to the library. You had to know the long QT syndromes. Now I've got this smartphone. I can just look it up. Uh, pretty soon. Uh, ECGs maybe not a good example. I love ECGs. I think it's a great. I, I, I love. That's why I went into cardiology. But I make no mistake. There's going to be a computer who's going to be able to read EKGs better than us for sure, pretty soon. And you know why can't I read a study that you can train yourself to do point of care ultrasound. We have all these tools that make the things that we spent so much time learning easier. And everything is easier now. So that argument. Um, I understand the, you know, the, the SEAL Team 6 thing, but I, I think that we have 2020s different than it was in, say, the 1970s, I think, 1980s. I think, I, think it's so, I think it's so clear that I think it would be unethical to randomize a patient to a NP-only ER. <laughs> oh, yeah, but I mean, I'm we saying, have colleagues. We have colleagues who no way. We have colleagues who think it's, it, it's unethical to randomize uh, Impella versus no Impella. So that's not, that's not far-fetched. Right. But, you know, I'm going to come to, 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 to Anisha's defense, to my co-host's defense, because <laughs> I, I think, so I, I'm going to try to articulate what, he, what he's aiming for a little bit better, but, but I'm going to preface that by actually countering the, the, uh, the philosophy of medical conservatism the way you've articulated it. Because the way you've articulated it, it all centers about outcomes. And I don't see that the role of the doctor is to be an outcomes optimizer, right? And I don't think you do either, by the way. So I think you're a fake medical conservative because I think you're a better doctor than you are, than, than, you, claim, than you claim you be. So I don't think you are. I, I don't think it's impossible for you to go into a room and to tell to your patient to their face, I'm an outcomes optimizer, which means at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what happens to you so long as overall there's net benefit and uh, you know and net benefit outweighs net harm this is not medicine medicine has nothing to do with outcomes outcomes is sort of a surrogate even hard outcomes are surrogates right so outcomes so all this focus on outcomes i think is misplaced 
So there's something Ivan, to medicine. Ivan Illich would agree. Right. So there's something to medicine that is beyond that, um, that has to do with what Inish was talking about, which I think is it's it's a certain commitment, a certain commitment, not necessarily a touchy-feely commitment, you know, to holding hands and whatnot, because there have been some, I think, very good doctors who, you know, maybe are a little rough in their bedside manners. But nevertheless, uh, there has to be a commitment to take into consideration the entire person, right, the entire patient, you know, on, on their, along their various dimensions, and to, to, to understand health, meaning to understand physical, bodily nature, human nature, understand these things, understand causes and effects, you know, be rational, be scientific about that. All of this is sort of a, a body of knowledge and, and a commitment, right? So it's the combination of the body of knowledge and the commitment, which constitutes, you know, the, the ideals of modern medicine. And the only reason right now going in medical school is better than not is because we still have a trace, a very faint trace of linkage to the old tradition from hundreds of years ago, except that it is completely being eroded. It's being eroded by the bureaucratization, by the mechanization, by all the disregard to what really the essence of medicine is, which is not outcomes, but it's really a, a focus on the patient and on what health is. And we've disregarded that for, for decades and even a couple of hundred years, as far as I'm concerned, if you look at it philosophically. But nevertheless, there's still sort of a tradition that is still being passed on in a way that we can't really articulate, but it's there, it's sort of, uh, you know, implicit and whatnot, and it's enough that I, with Anish, would <laughs> refuse to randomize my patients to an ER, you know, that is uh, uh, manned by, by a nurse practitioner and, and not by, by a doctor. So that's, that's what I would say. Yeah, perhaps. I, I don't want to discount that. I mean, I, I mean, not every day, but many days I look back on my um, I look back on the people who mentored me through Indiana, and and uh, I have a couple colleagues from Indiana. Um, we we call it like the Indiana Mafia, but I mean we and we go back to the old teachers that we had and and the care that they took to see us through to see these things and 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 we have that and so I think it, it it's beautiful it's true, but the question is whether it's necessary to 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 change outcomes, not just outcomes like, um, uh, you know, adherence to heart failure medications, but outcomes about, you know, but uh, living and dying and also patients, patient satisfaction. But I, I think we learn a lot of these things that are important in medicine, not in these classrooms and, and being a scut monkey for, you know, residency and internship. We, we learn it over time and, and we learn it and a lot of it is inherent. Don't you think that we're just caring people or caring people? And um, I'm just not sure that you need John, medical school for that. Average, again, I think average outcomes, you know, the, the, the outcomes of the average is a, bad, is a bad way to look at it. Because if you, you know, the issue with not having a ton of training in healthcare or, or being less experienced in healthcare is that the errors you make, the bad errors you make, you, you may not, you know, you may not, you, on average, you you may do just fine uh, compared to somebody else. But the bad errors you make, the misses you make, the scale of them are all, no doubt going to be much, much, much larger. Just look at within medicine, right? The, the errors that interns make compared to the errors that that senior attendings make. It's not that senior attendings don't make mistakes. It's that the type of errors the senior attending makes 
are much, much more, you know, intelligent errors, if you will. Whereas the, the intern, you know, again, without, and that's why interns have so much backup and so much fail safe, right? Like the interns, right. you know, you get upset if you don't, if you don't, you know, uh, rise up the chain and, and don't let X, Y, no. But without that backup, I mean, can you imagine having interns be independent? So I think the scale of errors you make is very large. Um, so, you know, the, the types of things like the chances that, you know, somebody coming in with a puncture wound of a, of a, a you know, a puncture wound to the, to the, to the, to the foot and the chances that a NP will suture it uh, when they should be washing it out versus the chances an ER physician, an ER attending does that, that's a very, very different scale. Now on average, maybe it'll be okay, but there'll, so that, that's, that's, you know, that, that, that's, um, that's a major issue in terms of why you don't want to randomize patients to, to folks I don't that know. don't have the clinical training. Let me tell you another story. Experience. So I, yeah. I think about this. So when Stacy and I, uh, my wife Stacy is a yeah. palliative care physician, and and she's a year or two, she's two two years behind me. Yeah. So we rotated together. We met yeah. in Indiana, and we did this. We did rotation at the VA, and I was a resident. She was, she was. A, uh, I think I was an intern or second yeah. year, and she was a med student on the service. And we yeah. we had an attending who came over back in those days. The attending would come once a day for about 20 minutes, we'd tell him what was going mm -hmm. on and he would never see, yeah. it, was just, yeah. it was us. We were running right. yeah. an internal medicine service. Yeah. Okay, so it was me and medical students. And I really don't think those veterans uh, had any worse outcomes or did any worse than uh, if there were attendings running it. And I, I, I may be wrong about that, mm -hmm. but I really think that, yeah, we probably made some errors, but when you talk about errors, there's there's backup. I mean, the human body doesn't just die from one error. There's people you can call. There's people for help. There's um, you know radiology helps us. Uh, we we have biomarkers. You can't miss a MI anymore because of high sensitivity troponins. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that um, I think I, th yeah, I think you John, over overestimate. I, I trained I trained in I trained in a very similar environment and a very you know and and uh, where there wasn't a lot of uh, and it was it was an, a fantastic training experience but you can't believe you can't th there's a trade off you cannot believe that there are errors that are being made and again this always happens in an indigent or a VA population which is kind of kind of you know it's not I mean essentially we're tr we're training with those with with patients like that because nobody else really cares about them and we're it and it's a fantastic training environment but i but you i can't believe you can't uh, you really believe that we're not making i'm not sure because there? because because we we cared we cared a lot we're thinking oh yeah we, we cared we're like, we, cared, we like, were there holy shit we're probably screwing up so we were reading we were yeah. studying we didn't have right. smartphones then but if we did we'd be right. looking at it we'd right. be talking to people we'd be calling the yeah. you know the cv resident we'd be calling the hemonk fellow we'd be calling all these people yeah. lots of backup that's lots of backup, though. Lots of backup. That's the other cardiology fellow, etc. So yeah. Well, but why wouldn't a nurse practitioner do that if she, he or she cared? She'd be like, "Well, crap! I don't know what this is. I better call somebody." I mean, come on. Phone a friend is the most important thing that is the most important tool that a clinician has. I'm on my phone yeah. or texting people all the yeah. time because. Right. I mean, and I think a nurse John, practitioner or a PA can do patients, that. Patients deserve to know that. And they're not going to know that in the system. Patients deserve to know that the folks that they're, that they're being taken care of, like, you know, when they, they're going to be calling, they're being, they're going to be phoning a friend a lot. So when you, you know, when somebody comes in with chest pain in the ER and, you know, do you want an ER? Do you, do you want a nurse practitioner looking at EKG to decide whether or not this person needs something? Or do you want a cardiologist looking at it? 
And, you know, I think the problem I have is, is that it's fine if you want to let the market kind of decide, then make sure that everyone knows that this is an NP run only ER and you decide with your dollars whether you want to go there or you want to go to an ER that I run that has cardiologists looking at every EKG, fine. But, but that's, not, that's not how it's going to happen. What's going to happen is you have these massive systems and they're going to show up, patients are going to show up and they're going to be seen by someone. It's a provider and you know the provider moniker exists so that we're all flat and the same and patients don't know. So that's my, that's my major issue. Not that I don't think fine, take away license, let, let NPs do it. Because, you know, obviously there's, there's a different training program that they have lots of experience and uh, good eyes. And okay, let's leave it up to folks to decide that. I, I don't think they would decide that. What's happening right now, I think, is, is it's a, uh, a, little bit of a, con, a little bit of a con game. And the folks that are really going to benefit are, are, the, are, are the folks that are, that are up top. Now, it's not going to be patients. It's not going to be physicians. Um, it's going to be the folks that and, and by the way, even though they're going to be paying NPs much less than doctors, those, that, that price differential is not going to be passed on to the system or to patients. So I just see a lot of potential for abuse of it, though I'm sympathetic to right. you know, what you're saying. Right. Well, you know, I'm, I want to um, let John yes. uh, have the last yes, word absolutely. by quoting him, by quoting actually a sentence in your, in your piece that I think is, is, is very true. Doctors have long, uh, you know, uh, you say at the end, finally, doctors have long held a monopoly on medical practice. The medical guild protects us mostly through con convincing the public and lawmakers that there's a need for certification and control of the supply of doctors. And you want that to change. And with that, with, with that I'm in complete agreement with you. <laughs> and I think if we, if we let that happen, I think we would have medical schools the way Anish wants them. We might have nursing schools and other many different kinds of ways of providing medicine that people would choose at the end of the day. This is a, obviously a conversation for another time. But, um, but it's been great. I think it's, uh, I, I'm really, um, uh, I want to applaud you again, John, for, for uh, putting yourself out there so courageously, knowing uh, uh, full well that you would uh, be on the receiving end of a lot of uh, ire from doctors who feel very entitled by um, their the, the MD after their Uh, the MD initials after their names. And uh, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, so I thank you very much. Hey, Anything I, else I really you want to say before we leave? Yeah, I want to say one thing. I want to first say thanks. And I, I want to say when we talk about courage, when we talk about who's courageous online, I want to really give a shout out to you guys because I listen to your podcast <laughs> a lot. Um, and I think to myself as I'm listening to it, my gosh, these guys are really courageous for even talking about this. So kudos to you all for doing that. I really, you guys are far more courageous than me, for sure. So good on you. Thank you, John. And thanks, thanks for, for taking the time. Okay. And we look good. forward to reading you again. All right. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.